Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm very excited with our guest today. I think that uh, we're all going to be enjoying very much, listening about building, scaling, financing, raising money on a downturn too. I mean, you name it. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Shensi Ding. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So you grew up in Boston. So give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was uh, life growing up, you know, going there around Quincy Market, Fenway Park, you know, and all those goodies? Yes. So I grew up in Boston um, and went to school there. It was very boring. And so it allowed me to experiment a lot with different games. And I actually taught myself how to code at 12 just because there was literally nothing to do because it was so cold. Um, And my parents really encouraged it. I I built a lot of websites. I did a few internships, like building different websites for different, you know, research centers. And I had a great time playing around with it. And so naturally, when I went to college, um, I decided to study computer science. And that's actually where I met Gil. My co-founder. So, so you went to uh, to New York City uh, to study uh, computer science at Columbia. And one thing that uh, that really stood out for me is that you did not go into like the whole, you know, tech world and, 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 and push for the engineering side of things. You went into investment banking. Out of all things, why investment banking? Yeah, I loved coding and I really enjoyed the problem solving for it. But I always felt like a big gap in my knowledge was understanding if a company was a good business or not. I wasn't able to read financial statements. I didn't know how to evaluate a company. And I also didn't understand what people were talking about in the Wall Street Journal or New York Times whenever they were talking about company performance. And I felt like that would be detrimental to my career, especially since I wasn't the best software engineer in the world. I was pretty good. I wasn't a gill. Gil was known in our in our college as like being one of the best software engineers in our class. And so I think because of that, I was I was really interested in filling in those gaps. And so I worked really, really hard to break into finance. And interestingly, it was actually harder to break in because I didn't study econ um, like as my major. Um, got a great job and learned a lot from those two years. I actually focused on industrials investment banking, uh, but it really taught me the bread and butter of financial statements, you know, LBOs, DCFs, and I learned a lot too. And I also got a great work ethic from it too. So let's talk about then about, you were talking about good companies. You didn't know what, 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 what a good company looked like or, or how to read, you know, this stuff. I mean, what does a good company look like? What did you learn from, from that experience? Yes. A good company is able to have a unique positioning in the market and a good company is able to generate returns. Um, I also learned a lot about like market forces, understanding if, a company was going to get destroyed over time because it had no moat. Um, and it taught me a lot that I, that naturally now I just, I think about and a lot of people have to like read up on it, but it just became so ingrained, like creating presentations about why this company was special and going through financial statements, picking up little details about what that meant about each company that has to this day helped me a lot with thinking about merge um, and how we can make merge a more sustainable, like a long-term sustainable business as well. So at what point do you realize that perhaps the finance or perhaps investment banking is not for you? 
I started reaching a plateau and I wasn't really learning as much. I also felt like it wasn't something that I was really passionate about. And I wanted to find that thing that I was going to be really passionate about. And so I thought I, w- I moved to San Francisco after doing investment banking to work in tech investing. And I was surrounded by co- like people who were in tech. I also was meeting founders like every day because they were coming in to pitch, pitch our firm. And it was so interesting seeing how passionate they were about their work because I just didn't feel that way about finance. And so I started recruiting for different startups, really wanted to break in and see if that might be the best fit for me. And I got a great job at a company called back then Cadium, now called Expanse, and then also now acquired by Palo Alto Networks um, as a chief of staff, the CEO. And I loved it. It was so clearly the right fit for me and the right industry for me. And I'm so grateful that I got that opportunity because I love my job and I love coming to work every day and I love doing what I do now. And that company actually got acquired for eight hundred million. So I mean, quite a quite a incredible outcome. So I guess, what did you learn too about the full cycle of a company? Because at this point, you know, you're part of a a startup, you know, hyper growth business. You know, not so much on the investment banking side of things or the tech investment side of things, but more like on the operational side, being able to see, you know, the full cycle of a building, scaling, raising money, and then reaching the finish line. So what visibility would you say that that gave you? I think it showed me how I literally didn't know anything about company building up until I actually joined a company. And I became mortified about the dumb questions I used to ask founders when I was in investing. I was like, oh my God, why did I even like think that I could advise or like say any of these things? Because it was just such a different perspective. And it really taught me that it's not that easy to just change a number or assumption in a model. You actually have to like be on the ground and see what's going on. Um, and I, I learned a lot about how every single department was super important. I also learned the value of having really smart people working on a team towards a mission. The company, I, I learned a lot also from the founder. Uh, the CEO was just such a great storyteller. It was so well-read and very persuasive. And because of that, he was really able to pull the company towards success. And while you were there, you started to see like some of the issues around integrations. So what were some of those issues that, uh, that you encountered? Yeah, so we were in the cybersecurity space and we would detect different potential risks and we would create like an issue in our own product. Um, but unfortunately, we didn't have any integrations at the time. So the only way to export these issues was to download a CSV and re-upload it into whatever remote system that our customers were using. Ultimately, this is not very scalable since there would be thousands or even millions of risks that could potentially pop up. And so our customers started asking us for integrations and prospects did as well. Uh, there was a point where a lot of our sales team was getting really blocked by the number of integrations that we had. And our competitors were winning some deals just purely based on those um, that feature. And I think what was really fortuitous was that at the same time, my, my co-founder, Gil, um, he's actually head of engineering at a diversity recruiting company that needed to build a lot of ATS integrations. And even though he was head of engineering, he was actually building these integrations because they just didn't have the engineering resources. And so we were scrapping dinner, like, you know, our usually weekly dinner at Speakgrade. And we were just talking about why he looked like shit. He looked really bad. And so I was like, what's going on? And he was telling me about work and he was like, all these integrations are killing me. And I was like, oh my God, we have the same problem. Um, And I think just talking through like why it was such a big problem for his company and why it was such a big problem for our company, but from very, very different angles. I was seeing it from a P&L perspective. Uh, we had to hire a lot of engineers just purely to focus on these integrations. And it took a lot of time. We even tried contracting it out 
horrible code, how to rip it, how to throw it all away. Also very expensive. And he just really hated the experience because there's so many edge cases and it wasn't that easy. People would always think that building an integration just required just you're throwing some code in, like launching the integration, then you're done. But the maintenance was much more time consuming. And so I think learning that full spectrum from both ends was just very, very helpful. And that's how we decided to start Merge. So when you decided to start Merge or doing that process, you did interview a lot of people and to really get that, to seek that, that validation. No? So what were those interviews like and, and what were some of those questions and, and what were the results that you ended up getting that you were like, okay, I think that uh, we got to go for this? We reached out to a lot of companies. I think we reached out to, we met with probably around 100 companies and people from every single department because we really wanted to understand how their role was impacted by integrations. Uh, all these e all these meetings happened from colds, like cold messages. We didn't really know that many people at all these different companies. And so we just had a shooter shot, message a lot of people randomly. And also back then in San Francisco, you had to meet people in person. Like you couldn't really meet someone on Zoom or do a call. You had to go get coffee with them. And so we got coffee with a lot of different people that to this day, I'm still so grateful for because they taught us a lot and gave us a lot of great advice. Um, so so like even now decisions that we have made that like in our early days have like made a material impact because of the advice that those people gave us. And also a lot of them now are customers. Um, and so the reason why we decided that this was a good idea and the kind of validation that we got was how much money they would be, be willing to pay. The fact that we didn't have a product, they, they wanted to give us advice and wanted to make us successful. And also the fact that people were just like, this is such a good idea. Like if you build this, this is this is really going to work. But obviously, there was a lot of skepticism, too. I think a lot of people were thinking, like, is this really possible? Why like, why do you guys think that you're going to be able to solve this in a scalable way? And it gave us a lot of um, ammo to really want to prove them wrong, which was also very, very helpful, too. It's, it's great to have both of that so that you're really encouraged to be successful. So what was that day like when you and Jill were like, let's go. Let's give our notice. Yeah. Let's do this thing. Uh, yeah. So funny story. And I probably wouldn't recommend this for other founders, but... Um, I quit and I gave notice. And, and then I told Gil, I was like, hey, I quit. So you're going to have to quit too. And he's like, <laughs> dude, why did you do that? But I was like, I, I, I was like, I really think that like this, we can solve this because we, we came up with a solution. We knew the problem we want to solve. Like the other details, we can figure it out. But um, yeah, I just did that. And uh, it was so worth it because I, the timing I felt like if we missed this window, it was going to be too late. If we didn't solve it, someone else was going to. And so I really wanted to make sure that we took our shot where we could. Um, and then we did it like right during COVID. So started the company like May, June, 2020. Um, we never pivoted, never built anything else. This was the only thing we ever wanted to build. And we were just working in Gil's apartment, coding all day, uh, like working together, like talking to customers, recruiting people. Um, and it was really awesome because it allowed us to have a lot of deep focus because there was nothing else to do. Like you couldn't party, couldn't see your friends, you couldn't really do anything. All you could do was just focus on your company. And that was really magical. So for you guys, what ended up being, you know, for the people that are listening to really understand it, what ended up being the business model of Merge? How do you guys make money? So we have a platform fee and then we add usage on top. Um, so we are very fortunate now to serve over 5,500 companies on our platform in just like the two years that we've been out of stealth. Um, and so we have a great generous free plan for SMBs that want to get started, want to test quickly. Um, and, then, and then when they decide they need more features, they want more security, they are starting to sell to enterprise, they can upgrade and work closely with, and you have an account manager that can help work with them very closely to make sure that every, every detail is perfectly uh, taken care of. 
And also, I mean, the the two of you really took it on you to learn, you know, some of some of the good stuff uh, rather than relying on anyone else or delegating early on, which I think is a great idea. And part of this, you know, for example, was really pushing sales. I mean, you 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 took sales up on yourselves, uh, really went all the way up to 750k, and at that point, you know, is when you brought someone in to really uh, lead that. So. How was that thought process? And at what point do you realize, hey, maybe we need to get someone else to to take this on? I mean, I think it just extends not only to sales, but everything too. Gil and I also built product in the beginning. We weren't planning on hiring someone to start building it for us. I relearned how to code so that I could build the product because I didn't understand what was going on the code base. How could I possibly try to tell someone else like instructions on what they should be doing once we hired someone? I also wanted to make sure that I understood how, what it was like to build the integrations and maintain them too. And so I would understand the nuances of them when we did go through sales motions too um, later on. Um, but yeah, Gil and I, we did a lot of sales meetings. We hired this really great um, team member who did a lot of experimental outbound for us. Um, like the summer of 2021 and we ended up booking like like oh actually it was 2020 no it's 2021 and we ended up booking like hundreds of sales meetings and gil and i almost died i think it was meetings from like 10 a.m to 9 p.m and every day i just looked so bad i think it was to the point where like one of our team members was like hey the worse jesse looks the better it is because that means she's in more sales meetings but it really, <laughs> it really got our like reps in because Day to night, I was just practicing, seeing what was working, what wasn't working. Gil was doing the same thing. And we really started honing in on what was effective. And we would give each other notes too. Um, and I also felt like if we didn't understand like who to talk to, how to talk about the problem, what they cared about, how could we, all, again, possibly try to hire someone and try to make them do the same thing? Um, and so I thought it was very, very important for us to have that experience. But also, sales as a founder is persistent in every part of the role. You're selling your investors when you're trying to fundraise. You're selling candidates when you're when you're trying to hire them. Um, you're selling your existing team members for why this is the best opportunity every day when you're working with them too. And then of course, you're selling to prospects when you're trying to convince them to use the product. So I think it's very important to like understand that script, practice it, and hone it into. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance you know that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition so that gap that i found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when i met my co-founder at pantera mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com, and we would love to take a look at helping you out. 
So let's talk about then storytelling and selling, as you were saying, because it's all about getting people excited about the future that you're living into, whether, as you were saying, it's investors, employees, future employees. What have been some of the biggest key lessons around selling or storytelling that you've learned you know, during this journey? I think show some enthusiasm. I've been shocked from some of these demos and founders that I've met and like seen where there's like, oh yeah, this is what I'm building. I'm like, how are you supposed to excite someone <laughs> if you're just like, if you're not that excited about it? And so I think yeah. what Gil and I really have um, as founders that has helped us a lot with both recruiting and sales, sales is how enthusiastic we are about this product. And I love integrations. Like I really love this problem and I think about it all the time and I think it's really fascinating. But I think for a lot of people who try to start a company and they aren't really sure of the idea and they're not that excited about it, I think it's hard to sell it if you're genuinely not that excited about it. So I think the most important part of storytelling is having a, like, having a compelling story through the enthusiasm that you show um, as you're telling it. And as you're thinking about team members too, and, and, and we've been touching on this, I know how important culture has been for, for the two of you. And, um, and basically, you have also been part of every single interview. How many employees do you guys have now? We now have around 75 people. 75 people. I mean, that's quite a, a, a few people in there. So, so why did you take it on you to be part of every single meeting? Why was that so important? And, and I guess, what was the most important question that you would typically ask people? So we have a very distinct culture and it's not for everyone. And I think because of that, it's very important that Gil and Gil and I also have a very strong vision for the feeling that we want to have in our company when we hire a new team member. It doesn't matter how, how amazing someone is at their job if they're an asshole. And it doesn't matter how, um, like, it doesn't matter like how fun they are if they're also not committed to the team and they're bringing everyone else down too. And so we're really trying to make sure that we have like a very distinct like profile that joins the company and excel and energizes everyone else around them. Um, and because Gil and I did a lot of sourcing, like I think we sourced like thousands of people. <laughs> I think we sourced around like 50,000 software engineers when we were like trying to find our initial team. Um, we have seen a lot of profiles. We've also talked to a lot of people. And I think having that, the, the data collection of people we thought were going to be stars and 10x team members versus people who were clearly not going to be someone fun that would be to work with or would not be like a strong contributor to the team. It allowed us to now be able to go into an interview, chat with a person, really get to know them, understand their wants and needs, and also their life story and determine whether or not they would be successful here. Um, and it's been very, very effective because I think we just have so many data points and it's really hard to replicate that, especially as like a, as like a new team member who's becoming, uh, who's becoming used to interviewing for the first time. Uh, it is really hard to be able to train that too. Uh, over time, obviously we want people to be able to do it at the same degree, but especially at the early side, at the, on the early side of, um, of your company journey, it's important to make sure that that early foundation um, is really curated. So let's talk about, you know, let's keep on this path of, uh, of on this topic of recruiting. Let's go, let's go on recruiting investors. How much capital have you guys raised to date? We raised around 75 million. My God, 75 million, 75 people. 75 is the lucky number. Eh? Now, yeah. now, <laughs> <laughs> now, now, now let's talk about this because you guys ra raised the money uh, during COVID too. Uh, and I believe this was one of the uh, few investments that uh, some of these firms, like for example, Axel, were actually doing. So what was that journey like and, and why did you think that they, they were the ones? I know we've never quite gotten our timing right. So we raised our seed um, 
like August, 2020. So right when COVID started and everyone was just really nervous about investing in companies and people were starting to get used to Zoom investments. Uh, we raised our seed from NEA. Um, a year later, we got a little bit luckier and the market was more like normal and Zoom meetings were better. We raised our Series A from Edition. Um, and then more recently, our Series B, we raised that August 2021, uh, sorry, August 2022 peak of the market downturn for tech. Um, we raised our growth round and that was a wild journey. But I think one thing that we were very fortunate in doing and also having was a team that was really focused on making sure that this was a good, high quality business. Um, our head of finance actually joined us as I think like employee nine or eight. And from the very beginning, she was very, very disciplined in making sure that our spend and also our customer acquisition costs and um, our S&M spend per dollar of revenue generated was going to be really high quality and that we were building not just a business that was growing very quickly, but also, again, a high-quality company. There are so many businesses out there that I think just do not have the right fundamentals, and it's really hard to scale that. It's also hard to change the company's DNA um, later on. Um, and so I'm just really proud of the company that we built. And so that's why last year, um, I believe Excel only invested in us for their growth, for, um, like out of their growth fund. And the prior, year prior to that, they had around 23, 24 investments. So, I mean, you're throwing in here like some incredible names. I mean, NEA, Axel, I mean, great, great people. So you guys were coming, you, you guys were not coming from the startup world. You know, you were coming from investment banking. You know, you did a, another company before and, and I've shown that, I saw that you even had, you know, some employees of that company to, you know, investing, you know, on the business, which is great. Uh, and the same thing with, with, with Gil. So, what was that process? Well, I, of... I wouldn't say that we did both come from startups, and we worked very. Uh, we knew the investors from the. Oh, last so you companies. know the investors already. Got it. We so, did, yeah. So what was that? <laughs> so what was that process then like of, of really building the network, or even better, you know, since you already know these people from from before, what was that process of activating them to jump in and 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 to really ride this journey with you? Well, I mean, I think it was important to have worked at startups before this too. So Gil, he was the founding engineer at that startup before, and he knew the investors of that company quite well just from being an executive. Um, and for me, as the chief of staff, I also got to know the board members quite well from working so closely to the CEO and also assisting with investor relations. Um, so I think like just working really hard and then also showing them what you had and having really great back channels that went a really long way for that initial seed investment where people aren't sure if you're going to pivot later. People aren't sure if the original idea that you think of is going to work. Um, so I, I think just like making sure that you have a strong, strong back channels because the only thing that they're really investing in the beginning is you as a team. And I guess uh, in this case, as you guys were going from seed to series A to series B, how did you see as well the um, the level of expectations, you know, shift? I think, yeah, I think the difference between Series A and Series B was quite drastic. The amount of due diligence that came into Series B was just a lot more information and also expectations were higher for the type of data that you were able to provide. Um, thankfully, we had a really strong finance and operations team that was able to have collect all that information and also already had it organized. But it's a pretty stark difference. And I think that it was something that did surprise me. Um, because, yeah, because for Series A, especially at the time when we did raise it, it was definitely a little bit more, it was still more betting on the team versus like, oh, is this company just scaling now? And I guess, you know, now incredible journey you know, with all these people, all these great investors, you know, that are part of uh, of this journey, I guess if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of merge is fully realized, what does that world look like? 
Yes. So every company that needs integrations, instead of building that in-house, they're using us. Um, not only that, but I can't share too much, but there's other other things too that people would be using us for as well uh, that are related to APIs um, on the software. Yeah. But we have a lot of exciting features that we, and products we want to launch, but we'll see when that happens. So I guess I guess uh, you know a lot of exciting stuff in store that uh, you know you're all you're you're leaving everyone you know really you know excited about what's coming. I guess as you are you know testing all these new initiatives and and really deciding on whether or not you know which one of them makes sense. How do you go about it? How do you go about hey you know maybe this is the direction to go you know with this initiative or maybe not this initiative. Let's go with this other one. What what does that process look like? I always think it's better to lead with action versus just like analysis paralysis. I think a lot of times, especially like in like the past few years, people are like, oh, well, you can just like, you know, hack your way to product market fit. But I think a lot of it is just like, you need to just put something out there. If it hits, it hits. If it doesn't hit, it doesn't hit. You need to figure out like how to fix it. But I think a lot of people are like, oh, I can use a spreadsheet in order to figure out what product market fit is. You can't really do that. You need to like actually have something out live that someone can test. Um, so that was really important for us. We've always really tried to like lead with action. And it's the only way sometimes to have the data because there is none is to launch something and then be able to collect the data. Um, so that's always been something that we've really pushed as a company is just lead with action, get something out there, and then we'll have some more information later. Product market fit. So what did product market fit? At what point do you really experience? Did you guys experience product market fit? Yeah, when our product literally was not working sometimes and people still wanted to use it. I was like, wow, I can't believe it. And obviously our product is not in that state. These are like the very early days. But I remember like back then I was like, wow, like you, there's just so much work to do. And like, I'm I, like this, com- this customer like really wants like us to make these changes. Um, but they still wanted to use us. They didn't want to build it in a house. And I think that was when I realized, like, I think there's really something here. So... If I was, I mean, we're talking, we were talking about the future earlier, uh, but I want to talk about the past, but doing it, you know, with a lens of reflection. So if I was to put you into a time machine and I'm able to bring you back in time, bring you back in time, you know, perhaps to that moment where you were, you know, wondering, you know, what, what the future would be, you know, where, or perhaps to bring a solution, you know, to a problem that you were encountering, perhaps during those chats that you were having with Gil. Imagine if you were able to go back in time and, and have a chat with your younger self and perhaps with Gil there too, and you were able to give each of you, you know, the same piece of advice. And that would be a piece of advice before launching a business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I think the advice would be do what your gut is telling you because there have been several points in our company journey where we made several decisions on what our company direction would be, what our company culture would be, and people wanted us to change it. And this would happen every month or every week. And we would say no. And it was really hard to say no. It's, it's always easier to just say, yeah, like I'm just going to do what everyone else is doing. I'm just going to take the easier route. But we didn't. And it was really painful. And sometimes we were like, oh, should we change our mind? And I'm really glad that we did it because our gut was really telling us that like, it's really hard to unwind like what you, what some of these decisions would be. Um, and I'm glad we didn't because I'm so proud of where we are currently. And that only would have, ha- that only happened from us staying really, really, really strong and staying, staying the course. And it start it's been from like 
what the product, like who we're selling to, what the product looks like, um, what we were building, um, who we would hire, where we would hire them. And I'm really glad we stayed the course. I love it. Now, for the people that are listening, Shensi, I would love to reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to do so? Yes, you can always reach out to me on LinkedIn um, or email me at shensiamerge.dev. I'm always available. Um, you can also always sign up for free if you're curious and learning more about Merge. But yeah, I'm really excited to share more about Merge to you all. Amazing. Well, Shensi, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.